This is Seattle's Morning News. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien and Chris Sullivan. Here is CBS Business Editor Jill Schlesinger with the latest snapshot of the economy. So is it better or worse than we thought? Mm, I don't know. How much of a, a optimist and how much of a pessimist are you? I mean, look, there's there's not, kind of like the rosy picture is, hey, aren't we glad that we had GDP or economic growth expand on an annualized basis of 2.9% for the last three months of the year? That's like, well, good news. Um, the not so good news is that it looks like the amount of spending and the economy churn really did start to slow down in December. And so as a result, I think if you're a pessimist, you look at that December and the trend and you say, uh-oh, it looks like that we could be on the precipice of a recession. Hmm. So is the Fed going to raise rates again? And, and if it decides not to, isn't that a signal that this, the crisis is over? Well, I think that um, odds are, and these odds are probably better than the Super Bowl odds, and I'll get to that in a second, that the Fed is going to increase rates again. Because even though things are slowing down, and they are, there's no doubt, it is clear the Fed is hyper-focused on inflation, right? Mm Mm-hmm. So let's look at the economy in two different ways. One is, you say, goods inflation, stuff, the stuff we buy. That news has been much better, right? We Car prices and used car prices coming down, a lot of commodities and, you know, energy coming down. That's all good news. But goods is 30% of the economy and services is 70% of the economy. And so when you look at that, you see that the Fed is very focused on services. And in fact, they track a really wonky thing called the sticky price index. The sticky price index. Yeah, isn't that fun? Um, and this is from the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. And they're tracking the components of the CPI, the consumer price index, that are slow to change. And You know, it's really wild because remember when the Fed said, oh, this is all temporary and like they were kind of right for the good side. That was temporary. The services has remained higher longer than the Fed expected. And I think that is why the Fed is most likely to raise rates by a quarter of a percentage point. Now, we talk a lot about the the pending recession, but I think what people want to want to know is whether my particular job is in jeopardy. Mm-hmm. Now, as somebody who's worked in the, you know, the business world for a long time, what what are the signs you can you can see in your own company that tell you something's wrong and I better be worried? Well, obviously, the technology sector does not have to actually um, question that. So I know you have a ton of tech workers in your listening audience, and they already knew that. They, I feel like the tech people really understood what was going on before the CEOs did because things were slowing internally. They knew that. So the tech sector gets so much focus, but I would encourage folks to look at other parts of the Labor Department report that comes out this week. One in particular that I like is the category of temporary help. You know, when you hire a temp, you say you're usually it's because you cannot fill a long term permanent position, right? And that often happens when the economy is like on fire. People say, just give me anybody. I hire temps, hire whoever, get get in here. Conversely, when things slow down, one of the first categories to show job losses is temporary help services. And uh, I follow one economist from a group called Capital Economics over in the UK. 
And this guy, Andrew Hunter, pointed out that temp services has fallen for five straight months. The three-month average is now negative, meaning there are more layoffs than hires in temporary services. And when we see three-month averages in negative territory, that usually is occurring during a recession. Okay, so it sounds like trouble is coming. And is it going to be, is the uh, the debt drama going to factor into this, or is that just, that just a sideshow? Well, I mean, it is a sideshow until it's not. Most people are, and I say people, uh, let me say that most analysts, most big banks are presuming that there will be a deal, that the debt ceiling will not become a major issue. I'm also very, um, I'm very worried because although these banks think they have what they, you know, they kind of think they know, a lot of these big institutions, they used to hold sway over politicians, right, with money. Well, the people who are fighting against raising the debt ceiling are not people who receive big money from Wall Street banks and investment firms and um, big companies. They are often people who are raising money themselves and they're sort of grassroots and they're on the edge of the party. And I'm not sure that big banks have power over those folks. So I think it's important to at least raise a, a level of yellow flag caution that we still need to raise the debt ceiling and we shouldn't presume everything's going to be hunky dory. We just don't know. And what about the Super Bowl? <laughs> uh, I'm thinking I'm taking the Phillies, uh, the, the Eagles rather, with uh, one and a half points. What about you? I have I have no idea. All I know is that who, whoever uh, roughed the quarterback in that last play, I'm God, he I, must he. Uh, I mean, like the most hated person in. Uh, I don't want to say hated, but I feel why I felt terrible for that guy. I felt absolutely awful. I mean, it was a dumb thing. Yeah. But by the way, they did have the ball with two and a half minutes to win the game. Yeah. So they had the chance. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I'm a big football fan. Uh, I'm a Jets fan. So uh, who knows? Uh, <laughs> I, it could be 17 more um, Super Bowls before I ever even have a chance. Who knows? Or ever. Forget. Maybe in my lifetime. Maybe maybe my last shot at a Super Bowl was with Joe Namath and when I was a child. <laughs> CBS business analyst Jill Schlesinger. Thank you, Jill. Thank you. Seattle's morning news. This is Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien. I'm sure you're familiar with the drug Ozempic. It's intended to treat diabetes, but a lot of people who don't have diabetes want to get their hands on it to find out why. Let's page the doctor. Paging Dr. Cohen. Dr. Gordon Cohen, MD. So this was for type 2 diabetes. Give us a quick history of the drug. It was approved in 2017 for the treatment of diabetes. And once people started taking it on a, long, on a large scale, they started to realize that there was a significant weight loss associated with it. So the company then went back to the Food and Drug Administration. They renamed the drug Wegovi. It's still the same drug, but it was put forth to the FDA as a treatment for obesity. Uh -huh. And so in 2021, uh, it was approved by the FDA for weight loss in adults with obesity or for those who are significantly overweight and have at least one weight-related health condition, such as high blood pressure, cholesterol. So Ozempic is actually a lower dose uh, and it's not approved for weight loss. It's approved for the treatment of type 2 diabetes. 
and Wegovy, which is the same drugs, is approved at a much higher dose for the treatment of obesity. But what's happened is the drugs have become so incredibly popular that you can't get your hands on the Wegovy. And so now doctors are prescribing the Ozempic off-label for the purpose of weight loss. This must be a pretty powerful drug then. What are the side effects? That's one of the big problems with it is that the side effects are really significant. And sort of the number one side effect that people experience is severe, severe nausea. And they literally uh, describe, you know, laying on the bathroom floor for hours a day because of such severe nausea and vomiting. In one study, 73% of people experienced severe nausea, but people are, you know, sort of desperate. They've tried everything for weight loss without success, and this works. It's, in fact, so successful that some people describe having to remind themselves to eat or having to remind themselves even to just drink water, and they describe eating very, very small uh, meals, sometimes nothing more than just a protein shake in the morning and maybe a little bit of chicken broth over the course of the day. You know, the the company that uh, makes it, Novo Nordisk, their advice is if you're experiencing nausea, you should contact your healthcare provider for guidance about ways to manage it. But really, the only way to manage it is to either go down on the dose, which may ultimately not result in appetite suppression or just come off it altogether. But then when they come off it, for whatever reason, either they can't afford it, they can't get it, they decide they're tired of being sick to their stomach, but they regain regain their weight. And sometimes they even regain the weight they lost plus some, which isn't entirely surprising because it's not really a whole comprehensive program of, you know, cutting calories and increasing your exercise. It's sort of a fad right now, but it'll be interesting to see down the road how many people are able to stick to it or even want to stick to it because of the cost and the side effects. Well, that's what I'm thinking. I mean, there's always going to be a market for easy ways to lose weight. But if I've learned anything from our uh, weekly chats, there there is no easy way to lose weight. You have to cut calories and and exercise more. You're right. And the thing is, it really has to be a lifestyle change. I mean, here's the thing. We don't gain weight overnight. Like we gain weight very slowly, you know, and people put on weight over the course of a year, over the course of a couple of years, or maybe even over the course of a decade. But at some point we say, hey, I'm overweight. I need to lose weight. And then we go on a diet and diets are uncomfortable. And we want to lose the weight very rapidly, even though it took us a long time to put it on. And that's unfortunately not really the right way to go about it. What we really need to do is set a long-term goal and adjust our lifestyle accordingly and accept much lower uh, rates of weight loss. You know, uh, a pound, maybe two pounds a week is a more reasonable number. But, you know, people do things where they want to, you know, lose 10, 12, 20 pounds in a month. Well, you know, a lot of that initial weight loss is water. And then if you're really cutting your calories that significantly, like I said, you'll lose some fat, but you're also going to lose muscle. And when you lose muscle, you're ultimately lowering your basal metabolic rate. And that's what's responsible for keeping our calorie demand high so that we actually don't put on weight. That's why you can't just diet and be successful. You really need to have a program of diet and exercise. But there's a saying with exercise, which is you can't outrun the fork. And it's a true (laughs) statement, right? 
you know, you, you if you eat whatever you want and you, you know, try to treat that with exercise, that's not going to work. You're still going to gain weight. So it has to be a comprehensive program where you adjust your behavior so that you are exercising on a regular basis, ideally on a daily basis, even if it's only 30 minutes of, you know, rapid walking a day, but you're exercising on a daily basis and you're, you know, cutting back on your caloric intake. We need to burn more calories than we're taking in in order to lose weight. And that's the story behind the snappy jingle. Dr. Gordon Cohen, MD. Dr. Cohen, thank you. Thanks, Dave. This is Seattle's Morning News. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien and Chris Sullivan. On Mondays, we check in with Casey McNerthney of the King County Prosecutor's Office. Usually we get uh, sentencing reports on uh, criminals who have gone through the trial process. But today we're going to talk about the people who represent the victims, in particular, a victim advocate by the name of Sonetta Hunter. And what is the job of the victim advocate, Casey? So the victim advocates, and there are really dozens of them uh, who work for the prosecutor's office, they, from the point of the initial police report, and then all the way through, uh, in some cases, to after sentencing, work with the victims to help with really all the nuts and bolts and the emotional support, too, of, of what the court process will be like, what the charging decisions are, why that comes about, really any kind of question that a victim has or a survivor has, they walk them through it. And this is for cases that make the news and and more often the cases that don't, just kind of having someone to guide you through the process, which can be pretty intimidating for even somebody who knows it, but especially for a a victim who's forced into that situation. I would think that, except for the crime itself, one of the most difficult things is to have to go into court and confront your, your assailant. Absolutely is. Yeah. And we we really see that every week in the courthouse. And it's it can be anybody, you know, even people who you you would think would would have the experience and and you think, oh, well, they'll be okay. It can be really traumatizing for them. And then there's often children that have to testify. It's it's it really is almost always emotional whenever you see that. So for someone like Sonetta, she she spends her whole day then having to hear the details of these horrible cases. How does she deal with that? Probably the best way to say it is that Sonetta is, you know, imagine your favorite teacher, you know, they never get a ton of great recognition or maybe not as, as much pay as the attorneys would, you know, or in that analogy, the administrators for a school. But they are the ones who make the difference, who you remember most when you think back on what helped you get through it. And so, you know, she also talked a little bit about um, her own history and, and why she does this work. And she's in her 26th year. You know, I just tell people that at the end of the day, when we do have those good outcomes and we do help make a difference in someone's lives, that will keep you going um, on those days where you feel like, man, what is this all for? And I can't, you know, hear one another one of these stories. You think about the people that you helped. You think about the people that helped you along the way. I grew up in a home where there was domestic violence and my mother didn't have the kind of support that we offer. This kind of thing was not heard of. And so to be on the other side where I can provide that support, it makes it worth it to me. And, you know, you get through it by taking care of yourself. You know, you have to learn how to turn it off when you need to, because if you are not able to do that, you know, you will easily be burnt out. 
these advocate spots, Lisa Mannion, the current prosecutor, in her, her, her last role in the last couple of years, added a director of victim services, Colleen McEngles, who, who really does great work, and also added 10 more spots to it. So this is an effort that has expanded in recent years. And, and I, mean, I really just can't say enough about the great work that these victim advocates do. And most people don't realize that they're even in the system. And so it's it's nice to know that, you know, if you're forced into a situation like that, there are people just like Sonetta. So are these are these family cases then considered the hardest cases? Yes and, and, and no. There's, I mean, every case, you know, has its heartbreaking elements. You know, there's there are folks who handle um, each of the homicide cases in Seattle and King County, and and they kind of divide it up by roughly the I ninety bridge. Um, and so, so each each one of those shootings that you hear in, in the news, that I mean, those can be can be awful too. Or those are particularly hard cases because it's it's just every one of them is, is heartbreaking. But then you also get elder abuse, financial fraud, sexual assaults, and and rape cases. That there's there isn't an, an easy case really, but these these folks make it easier for them. The most heartbreaking cases involve children because to me, they're the ones that, you know, absolutely had no choices in the situation. You know, you don't know always the lasting effects these types of things are going to have on, on children, on a particular child. We have a wide range of assaults that take place anywhere from a push to, you know, all the way up to homicides that the advocates work with on a daily basis. Every case is absolutely a case-by-case scenario. It is reassuring for folks to know because most people don't realize that there are people just like Sonetta who who really care so much and, and, and often have the opportunity to take other jobs. And this can be an emotionally taxing job, but there are people just like her who stick in the job and, and who really make a difference. And she said that she's had people who have, have uh, reached out to her years and years later and say, hey, you probably don't remember me, but you really helped me through this case. And I, I haven't forgotten it. And with her and, and each of the victim advocates, in most cases, they haven't forgotten it either. Well, it sounds like she feels... I guess, an obligation to try to help people who were in in the same situation that she once was. Yeah, absolutely. And there are many people in our domestic violence unit who have experienced domestic violence, you know, whether they're attorneys or uh, the legal professional staff or, you know, Whatever the range is, there there are are multiple people who have had that kind of experience who who have overcome much more than you realize until you get to know them. Now... In terms of um, Lisa Mannion and her uh, taking over the prosecutor's office, uh, I know a lot of people have speculated on what her agenda is and what her approach is going to be. How would you characterize it? I would characterize it as the priorities are violent crime and repeat property crime. And then also with the gun violence unit that was added uh, last week, that's important too. And also gender-based crime like domestic violence and and rapes and sexual assaults, those are key. And um, economic crimes, you know, that really hammer businesses are big. But you know what I should do is, is just invite Lisa on for next week if if uh, that would work for you guys. Sure. Casey McNurthy, King County Prosecutor's Office. Casey, thank you. You too, Dave. Thanks as always. Time for your daily dose of kindness, brought to you by Heritage Homecraft. Enduring love in the face of Alzheimer's. Here's CBS's Steve Hartman. Oh my gosh, let's find the picture. Peter and Lisa Marshall of Andover, Connecticut are paging through the most memorable day of their lives. It was unforgettable. But he's forgotten it. He has forgotten it. Who's this? It's the saddest part Mm. because you want to reminisce and you're alone in the memory. Red Wing Blackbird. As we first reported a couple years ago, Peter was diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's. Eventually, he not only forgot his wedding day. He's pretty, isn't he? He forgot 
his wife. Lisa became just another nameless caretaker. And yet, a whisper of their love must have remained. Because Lisa says all of a sudden, he began courting her. As if they'd just started dating. Until one day, a wedding scene came on TV. Peter pointed to the screen and said, let's do it. And I said, do what? And he pointed at the, he pointed again. And I said, you want to get married? And he got this grin on his face. And he said, yeah. So he fell in love with me again. <laughs> Lisa accepted his proposal and staged a wedding for her already husband. I can't even describe to you how magical it was. He was so present and it was very touching. Peter, you may kiss your bride. Lisa says Peter hadn't been this lucid in weeks. <laughs> but it was a Cinderella moment. The clock struck 12 and by the next morning, this wedding too was lost to the fog. Yes. But Lisa says she fully expected that. I'm the one who's going to remember that, and that's going to help me heal later. Unfortunately, later came. Peter died about a year ago. Lisa is now advocating for other Alzheimer's patients and their families. She has also written a book called, Oh, Hello, Alzheimer's. I wanted people to understand the devastation of the disease, but mostly I want people to continue to find joy and really focus on the on being present with their loved ones. Do that, and Lisa says Alzheimer's will never defeat you. It'll just make your love all the more invincible. Steve Hartman, On the Road, in Andover, Connecticut. Seven forty-eight, and now from the G and Ursula show, which starts at nine. Here is G Scott. So, did the process work? Did we pick the two best possible teams for the Super Bowl? I think it is. I think uh, if you were to uh, talk about the uh, beginning of the season and you say mm, Kansas City Chiefs might be there and considering that the off season that the Philadelphia Eagles had and there was only one question mark for the Eagles and the question mark was their quarterback. Would Jalen Hurts be good enough to get this team to the Super Bowl? Because every other facet of the team was pretty good and Jalen Hurts answered that question and I think you have the two best teams in the Super Bowl. Uh, I am looking forward to the Philadelphia Eagles winning. I am rooting for them. I want them to win so bad because I can't stand Patrick Mahomes' family. What? Family? I okay. know. So I know that was the that quarterback was of, of the Kansas City the Chiefs. Kansas City Chiefs, yeah. and you don't like his family. Yeah. So, so it, it's kind of clever, though. It's kind of clever, but I don't like the family. Hear me out. Patrick Mahomes doesn't say anything. So we are used to the athletes themselves talk a little trash and a little trash talk but Patrick Mahomes is really very smart in this he doesn't say a word he does no trash talking but his family they except for the mama but all the rest of them they just talk cash trash all the time the daddy (laughs) the brother especially the brother the wife, they all, they, they can't stand what, them. What, what are they saying? Uh, well, the daddy yesterday 
it's pretty kind of tongue in cheeks, kind of kind of funny. So every time Joe Burrow, who is quarterback for the Cincinnati Bengals, every time they win a big championship, when he was the quarterback down to LSU and they won the national championship, he smokes a cigar. So every time there's a big win, mm-hmm. Joe Burrow will smoke a cigar, kind of like an ode to Joe Namath back in the day. Mm-hmm. Well. Yesterday, Patrick Mahomes' daddy was down in the field, and he said, I got my Joe Burrow cigar, and I'm smoking my Joe Burrow. Ah, makes it interesting, yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah, which was, which was cool. <laughs> but then, you know, but then the brother, he gets on, and he says stuff, and then you look up the wife, Brittany Mahomes, she says stuff. They all just get on. But again, it's clever, because... He's not doing it, uh-huh. but the family so he's does. He stays it. clean. He stays clean. What I'm, what I'm absolutely just losing my mind over. I, I had to look them up after you said you didn't. Is that Mahomes is 27? Yeah, and Jalen Hurts is 24. So we're going to watch these two babies play against one mm-hmm. another. First is that first. just what happens as you get older? Or have they always been this young in football? I, no, 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 no. I with you, Colleen. I no, no. I know exactly what you're talking what? about. What? Twenty four. I I agree. I barely had a brain at twenty four. That's because we're getting older. Okay. And that's why we're is looking that what at it. This I way. just look at their ages, yeah. and I'm like, what are you kidding me? First, like they shouldn't be out yeah. there getting hurt. First time in Super Bowl history, two black quarterbacks facing off in the in the is Super Bowl. That true. Yeah. Oh, that's true. Yeah. That's really exciting. The first time. So uh, I, I heard you guys talking about it. you guys did your listeners a, a very a good service to talk about the Super Bowl tickets and how some the look. Why is it so expensive for a Super Bowl down in Glendale, Arizona? Let's keep it a buck. Arizona down there is highly overrated. All they got is a damn Chili's. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I've never it been, is, so I don't know. It is ugly down there. Yeah. They have sun in the wintertime, and it's good weather. Outside of good weather, there's nothing that you like, ooh, I went to go sightsee down in Scottsdale. No, you didn't. Mm-hmm. This is nothing to sightsee. It's dusty, windy. <laughs> if you buy one of those $10,000 tickets, do you at least get extra leg room? What, what do you no. get for that? You, you, you get to get on social media, post it to the gram, and tell the folks, I'm at the Super Bowl. That's what you get. That's, That's a lot of, look, that is a lot of football games today. There's a lot of folks that go inside of these stadiums that don't watch the game. They just take pictures and they take selfies and they take pictures. They go pic- for the concert, they, right? They go for the, oh, now that's good. Yeah. Rihanna, isn't she doing yeah, the Super Bowl yeah, this Yeah, 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 yeah. Now, I, I will good. say, I mean, but I think the best thing about the Super Bowl is, yeah, the game is great, but it's everything that surrounds it. It's the week of, if you, if you got enough money to get down there, because hotels are crazy right now. You're talking about a thousand. If you want to stay within like a uh, 30, the 20, 30 mile radius of the, you're talking about a thousand dollars a night. Ticket doesn't even include the hotel, does yeah, it? Yeah, it doesn't even. But you get to see that stadium, which looks like a, a hubcap just landed. It's, <laughs> it's amazing. I have nothing good to Chris say about that. I have nothing like good to say about that stadium. You know what that stadium has done to Seattle Seahawks? Uh, I don't know. A what is terrible it? I mean, place to watch I mean, a game. That's where, that's where Earl Thomas played his last game. Mm-hmm. Oh. That's where Cliff Abril played his last game. So is it just oh, bad no memories That's where there. Cam Chancellor played his last game. Yeah. Huh. I can't stand that place. I mean, as a matter of fact, <laughs> I'm thinking about it. I want to say Richard Sherman did his Achilles. St- I can't stand that stadium. And then <laughs> you guys know what happened at the one-yard line. 
in that stadium. Was it that stadium? Yeah. Oh, I blanked that out. Thanks mm. for reminding me, that man. PTSD now I'm going to have stadium. nightmares tonight. Mm. The stadium is just terrible to watch a game at. Is it bad? Yeah, I've, I've, I went to a national championship game there. It's like a mausoleum. There's, There's no juice there at zero all. Zero risk of me ugly. ending up there. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, I get so negative on this. On this. That's all right. I, I got negative. I'm, I apologize. This is a safe place for you to be vulnerable. If you don't okay. like Arizona, we're yeah. here for you. I have two weeks to discuss I just want to say, how about this? I'll leave on a positive. Dave, you look good with your shirt tucked Thank in. Thank you. Thank you very oh, much. Yeah. My shirt's always tucked look in. Look at you. Is it? Yeah. Is your, in, your, in your gig line. Shout out to the military out there. His gig line is on point right there. Oh, gig line. Gig I, line where your like, bell buckle is matched up with your shirt. is perfectly aligned. Uh, aligned. Shout out to the military. They know what I'm talking line. about. They know what I do. But I'm now a fashion trendsetter. Look apparently. at you. You're like shoulders. Are- uh, <laughs> and now let's meander down to Olympia to see what the legislature has been talking about. There are a couple of uh, issues. Thousands of people who went to jail for simple drug possession now want the state to reimburse them because those laws are no longer in effect. And there's also a bill on voting from jail. Let's go to Cairo News Radio's Matt Markovich. Good morning, Matt. Good morning, Dave. Monday morning, week four of the legislative session going into effect today. Lots going on. Um, And you talked about what's known as the Blake decision. That's that controversial Supreme Court ruling two years ago where basically the court, the state court ruled that felony drug possession is unconstitutional, the law that had felony drug possession. So that uh, so they've been talking about a fix for a long time. But, but I tell you, there's a lot of people out there who are racing to have their drug conviction vacated, meaning that never really happened, mm-hmm. and all the court fees uh, regarding that. And the bill's sponsor, Democratic Representative Tara Simmons of Bremerton, was a Blake conviction as well. This bill is about refunding the legal financial obligations of people who were convicted under Blake and vacating those records in. I was the only member here that actually had a Blake conviction. As a lawyer, I was probably the first person in the state to file to motion to vacate my Blake conviction. Wow. Yeah. So she's been a big leader about drug reform through her tenure here, and that she's only been in the session for about two years now. Um, But she went on to talk about just the scale of the problem. While other members in the legislature are more concerned about the drug policy going forward and whether we're going to um, give people criminal records again, I've been really focused on helping the estimated 262,000 cases get cleared up. Simple math there, Dave, tells you that's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. Uh, a lot of money, a lot of work by the courts. That's not it's 262,000 people. That's actually cases, so people can have multiple cases against them. But it's going to tie up a lot of the court issues, uh, court time. The legislature has given some money to local courts to deal with this, but it's a lot of work and a lot of money to pay back for the lawyer's fees, uh, the restitution fees. So that's just one of the things that are going through the legislature. The Blake fix, as they call them, are are still going to be debated on how to handle drug possession. Right now, it's just a a misdemeanor, and officers are being told just to send someone to to, um, uh, treatment centers, but it's still a huge issue. Well, I mean, that's what most, I think what most people would like to know is, is that court decision the reason we seem to be seeing more drug activity in the area, or was it in fact simply uh, an injustice and, uh, and good riddance to that law? 
I, I think it's the latter. They're not. There's just no. There's no data that I've seen that it says that this decision has increased drug use activity. Mm-hmm. Although very everybody's m- very aware that they can carry a, a lot of illegal drugs on them, and if an officer stops them, they cannot be arrested uh, for a felony mm-hmm. with that simple drug possession. Now, if they're dealing, that's a different story. But drug dealers and drug users as well as the police all know that's just a stalemate right now in terms of the possession of illegal drugs okay the uh, issue of being able to vote from jail explain that one to us well you know a lot of us thought you know if you're in jail or a convicted felon you you don't have the right to vote right at least at least the convicted felon. well that changed last year if you're convicted of a felony washington state or any other state or in a federal court you have the right to vote uh, starting January 1st of last year. As long as you're not currently serving in a DOC sentence uh, for confinement for prison. Mm-hmm. So that's the only qualification. So once again, Tara Simmons is the bill's sponsor, and she says, she explains why this bill is needed to have people get their rights to vote while they're in jail. People that are currently in jail do have a right to vote, but the unfortunate part is that they don't have access to their ballots oftentimes. Uh, jails are transient um, housing facilities where um, you know sometimes they're registered, but their ballot goes to their house, but they're in jail for you know somewhere between one week and 12 months. So these are people who are awaiting trial? Is that what she's talking That's, about here? Well, anybody, whether you've been convicted. So in a county jail, you know, you can't spend more than a year in a county jail. That's mm-hmm. just the way that who, that's how it works. Uh, but so if you're there for a year, a lot of times you're registered to vote and the ballot, your mail-in ballot goes to your house while you're sitting in jail. Yeah. So how do you get people to vote in jail? Now, that's what she's promoting here. Now, the, the is there opposition to this? Well, there was some opposition by the, um, the union representing the prison guards saying, you know, we would just want the logistics. We're not against letting them vote. Just logistics of how it's going to happen right now, and having a ballot there. So, um, so that's just kind of a thing. There's one. There was one other thing about that in the same hearing, Dave, where they talked about making it easier to challenge vote voting results and making it that's easier. That's the for most local- clear indication that there is likely a violation of the Washington Voting Rights Act to be able to say how are um, a protected class of voters voting in one way and then the non-protected class voting in another. And it does not mean anyone is trying to be racist or behaving in a racist way, but simply that the election system that's been set up or access to ballot drop boxes, a district versus at-large election is creating that racially polarized voting i'm sorry i fired that one too early matt so that, go, ahead, okay. go ahead and say i'll just I'll back i'll back uh, i guess i'll back announce that one as they yeah. say in the dj world um so that was alex her from one america a voting rights advocate com, uh, organization basically saying local jurisdictions the county auditor the the should be able to look at some results and he used the example of racial polarized voting. And if there's a discrepancy, so if a particular race happens to be voting a lot in one particular way, um, that could be a clue for the auditor to say, hey, we may need to take a look at this and and basically investigate what happened with this vote. Why did this particular way happen? So there's, that's just one example. But so they're talking about making it easier to challenge votes in, in a local or big race. Really? Yes. You, you, you would do a racial analysis and then assume that something nefarious went on? 
Yes, that's a, there was a study done by a University of Washington professor they were all citing, and that's actually one of the examples that the professor came up with that could have clued off that there's something going on that well, we're not that aware some, of. What would that something be? I thought it was practically impossible, for example, to duplicate ballots or you know steal ballots en masse to, uh, to fraudulently affect an election. I, I can't go into the details there, but it's not, we're not talking about fraudulent voting. They're talking about voting patterns that seem odd. And they're just basically allowing the auditor to pursue an investigation or look into it, not saying, hey, it's it's a bad election, but just giving the opportunity for local election officials, not the state of Secretary of State, but local election officials to look into it. That sounds very weird to me. So if you can find out more, give us uh, an update on that. Okay, what about uh, the pursuit bill? And finally, well, that's real quickly on this one. You know, today, we've been talking about this pursuit bill, a, a fix of it. Well, today, the one senator, Senator Mon- uh, Moncadingra, plans to introduce legislation today to put an 18-month delay on maybe a fix and have the Criminal Justice uh, Training Center look into the policies about pursuit, which a lot of people don't want to hear, but that's a big thing that's happening today. All right, very good. Matt Markovich on the state legislature. Thank you, Matt. You're welcome. This is Seattle Morning News. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien and Chris Sullivan. In Israel, there is new fighting, apparently, between Israeli settlers and Palestinians. Let's go to Michael Friedson from the media line in Jerusalem. What touched this off, Michael? Well, that's always a question that's difficult to deal with. Everything is cyclical, but where the circle stops and where it starts, that's something that in all these years nobody has ever been able to figure out. Of uh, This weekend was a very bloody weekend. There was a, an incident where in the, the north of Jerusalem, in the areas that Israel conquered in 1967 and which the Palestinians claimed for future homeland, there was a shooting at a synagogue on Friday night, the Sabbath, and also it happened to be Holocaust Memorial Day at the same time. A gunman took aim at people leaving the synagogue and killed eight. Uh, there were a number of wounded as well. There was a, a second incident where a 13-year-old boy shot at uh, Israelis in an, in an area not far from there. Two were, a father and a son were wounded, but he didn't kill anybody. Since that time, there have been what many people believe is retaliatory actions by the uh, people who live in those areas. As you said, colloquially, they're called settlers. The bottom line is that the uh, the lid is off. The violence is, is coming more strong, more fierce, uh, more frequently. And this, of course, when you add a, a very high-profile visit by somebody like the Secretary of State of the United States, Secretary Blinken, who's, who's here today, everybody has to perform and everybody has to get their licks in. So no matter how bloody an event would have been in its basic form and a politician from the United States coming along and you can imagine what we're facing. These are areas where Israeli moved in either on or adjacent to lands uh, still claimed by by Palestinians. And and I know that we were there. There was sort of an uneasy peace. And in fact, the, the Palestinians would actually come and do work for the for these, quote, uh, settlements. And, and that's pretty much been how it's uh, operated since then. 
Absolutely. It's, it's been codified. There's some 40,000 work permits a day. Mm-hmm. That means that 40,000 Palestinians who live in the Palestinian territories actually can enter uh, totally Israeli areas and, and they can work. Now, at times, the Palestinian Authority has tried to make that illegal. They wanted to not allow Palestinians to have any contact with the Israelis. They don't want them. They just don't want them involved. But then the the Palestinians say to the Palestinian Authority, "Look, uh, this is our living. We don't have anything else. You're not offering anything else. So you know, tell us what we can have if we stay in the Palestinian areas and not go into Israel, and then we can talk about it." And each time the government backs down because they just don't have the wherewithal to find uh, adequate employment for that number of people. So it's a, it's a it's a symbiotic relationship that erupts in violence periodically. It's a situation that nobody really wants to have, but yet within the context of that, there are tons of of stories of of loyal workers and relationships between workers and the people they work for. Um, one of the most amazing things about what we're seeing here and what we've seen for so many years, including from the time that, that you were here, is how things carry through on an inertia which is somewhat peaceful. And when there's a high-profile visit by an American diplomat, you can be pretty, pretty sure there'll be some kind of violence before or after or during. And ultimately, you don't see any significant progress towards a, a permanent solution. Nobody knows where anybody is hanging on those things right now. Uh, you know, during the Trump years, there was a, somewhat of a euphoria on the Israeli side that they were getting their Christmas list uh, filled. The, the wish list was shrinking as, as things were, were coming their way. Um, there was a lot of fear that on the part of, of the particularly conservative or right-wing Israelis that this was going to end under President Biden. But the relationship with the Biden administration is strong. President uh, Abbas, who is in the 16th year of a five-year term, he's pretty much taken the position that he can't fight the the fighting. The the violence is going to be there. He's used it at times as as a wedge, but uh, it seems to be getting a bit out out of control. Uh, Palestinians are within themselves internally are struggling for the day after Abbas. You know, we joke about the 16th year of a five-year term, but he's in his mid-80s. He's not well. He's known to be in, in failing health. And the question of who takes over after him is not just a question of a personnel change, but it's a question of a whole philosophy and a whole decision whether or not to finally put the guns away and, and really make an effort to have some kind of uh, diplomatic solution. Michael Friedson from the Media Line in Jerusalem. Michael, thank you. Always a pleasure, Dave. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News, the podcast. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. You can find our podcast weekday mornings right at 930. And if you subscribe, you'll never miss the Daily Dose of Kindness.